0: Uh, good morning to each of you, and uh, let me extend a warm welcome again to anyone who is visiting with us uh, this day. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter six. John chapter six. And follow along as I read for us verses 41 to 59. Again, that's John chapter six, verses 41. Two fifty nine. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me What have we seen so far uh, to this point in John chapter 6? Well, there's a sign. If you've been here the past couple of Sundays, you know that by now. At least I, I hope and pray you do. There's a sign. In the first 12 or 13 verses, we learn that the Lord Jesus does something. He performs a miracle. He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. Then he sends out his disciples to collect Twelve baskets full of leftovers. There's a wonder. There's a miracle. There's a sign. And then secondly, we've noticed that there's a response. Uh, The crowd is quite enthusiastic. Uh, The people are quite enthralled with what they have seen, but their motive is misplaced. They begin to follow the Lord Jesus. They begin to seek the Lord Jesus. They are all excited about the Lord Jesus. But it is for carnal reasons. Uh, they're, They're thinking to themselves, what can we get out of this? What can we get out of this man? Surely this is the second Moses. Surely this is the prophet who is to come. And he is the one who will free us from the Romans, just as Moses freed our ancestors from the Egyptians. What's in it? For me, they're thinking carnally. And so there is, thirdly, a discussion. And the Lord Jesus engages these crowds in conversation. And he challenges them. Dare I say, he's brutally honest. Almost confrontational. As he challenges their motives and he calls on them to consider their hearts. To examine themselves and to labor Not for the food that perishes, but for that food which is eternal. And he claims to be the true bread which has come down out of heaven. And all who come to him, all who feed on him, all who believe in him will inherit eternal life. Now, the discussion doesn't end there. The discussion continues. This dialogue continues into the verses which I have read for us this morning. But what does change is the audience. The Lord Jesus is no longer speaking to the crowd. He is speaking to the Jews. That is a little phrase. That is an expression that John uses repeatedly in his gospel account in reference not to the Jews as a nation, but to the Jewish religious leaders. And we're given a hint in verse 59, where John writes, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And there in that synagogue, he has this confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. And they have some questions for him. They've overheard his conversation with the crowds. They've overheard the claims that he has made. And so they're looking for further clarification. They're challenging the Lord Jesus. And now they begin to seek to undermine. What the Lord Jesus is teaching. And basically we can follow this discussion between Christ and the Jewish religious leaders as it unfolds in four phases. First of all, the Jews grumble. Verses 41 and 42. John states it right there. I'm obviously not making it up. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Hang on a minute. Just lay aside the bread factor for a moment. He came down from heaven. He's a man. As a matter of fact, he grew up not that far from here. As a matter of fact, we know his father and mother. Look at verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know. There may even be a hint of sarcasm there. Is this not the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know this man. Uh, We know where he has come from. We know his parents. And we even remember the rumors surrounding his birth. little something going on there that wasn't quite right. We remember his mother conceived before she was even married. How does this man now stand before us and boldly state with a straight face, I am the bread that has come down from heaven? That makes absolutely no sense at all. It's gibberish. It's confusing. It's mind-boggling. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven. Some clarification, please. That's what they're asking for. And so the Lord Jesus responds in verses 43 through 51. His response is interesting. That's an understatement. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say, okay, well, let me prove it to you. Why doesn't he say that? Because he's already proven it. He's already done the sign. He's already performed other miracles in front of these people. These people have already seen with their eyes things which they cannot explain. The proof has already been placed before them. And so the Lord Jesus isn't going to get into it with them. The Lord Jesus isn't going to begin to appeal to other evidence and to other proofs. No, the Lord Jesus approaches it from a different angle, which is quite surprising. It may strike us as a strange initially, but the Lord Jesus, what he does is he gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, here's the reason why you don't believe what I say. Here's the reason why you are having such difficulty in understanding and in accepting the fact that I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Here it is in no uncertain terms. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. There's your problem. And then he adds to it. He compounds their guilt. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so fill in the blanks, folks. Two plus two is four. It's pretty obvious what he's saying. The reason you don't come to me. The reason you don't believe in me. The reason you don't see the true significance of my sign. The reason you are struggling with my claim to be the bread that has come down from heaven is simply this. You have not been taught by my father. You have not been taught by God. Everyone who has learned from the father comes to me. But you see, returning to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Why? Because man in his natural condition is unwilling to believe. Man in his natural condition, dead in his trespasses and sins, is darkened in his understanding. He is hardened in his heart. And therefore, he is unwilling to believe even when the evidence is placed right in front of his face, But inches from his nose, he is unwilling to come, unwilling to acknowledge the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, unwilling to acknowledge as true what is so obvious and is staring him straight in the face. Why? Because he is alienated from the life of God and alienated from the life of God. His mind is darkened. He does not think straight. And his heart is hardened. He does not feel straight. And therefore, the choices and the decisions he makes flow from a darkened mind and a hardened heart. Because of his sin, he does not grasp spiritual truth. and Because of the hardness of his heart, he is stubborn. And therefore, he will not believe. And so the Lord Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Their sin and their sinfulness. And then he repeats his claim again in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Why? He repeats this great claim. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on in verses 49 through 51 to make a comparison. And he says, you think of your ancestors back there journeying in the wilderness when God called them from Egypt and led them to the promised land, the land of Canaan. How did he sustain them along the way? He sent manna from heaven, bread from heaven, but it was merely physical. They ate it, their stomachs were filled, but they all perished along the way. And now in marked contrast, God has sent the true bread from heaven, not someone who satisfies our physical hungering, our physical longing, longing, but our spiritual longing. I am the true bread of heaven, and this is life. Look at verse 40 51, the end of the verse, the bread that I will give for the life of the world. Here it is. It is my flesh. There's his response. And now there's a third phase in the discussion. Verse 52. And here the Jews begin to dispute. In other words, they, they, they continue to argue. The Jews then disputed among themselves. Verse 52 saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, this is just getting more and more bizarre. Downright Confusing. First of all, Jesus, someone who we know, we've known, we've known of him for years. We know who his mother and father are. He claims to come down from heaven. That just defies our understanding. And now all of a sudden he's saying that he, he is the source of eternal life. We need to feed on him. That means we need to eat his flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then we have the fourth phase in the discussion, verse 53 through through verse 58, in which the Lord Jesus hones in on this truth, that he is the bread of life, that all who desire to be saved, all who desire to have eternal life must feed on him. And so he says in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood you have no life in you in case you missed it verse 54 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day in case you missed it verse 56 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Let's try it again. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me and I lived because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And in case you missed it, the first four times I said it, let me repeat it again. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread. We'll live forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the Lord Jesus is trying to say something. Five times in a matter of six or seven verses. Talk about being repetitive. I've been accused of being repetitive in the past, but I'm in good company. Talk about being repetitive. The Lord Jesus is trying to drive something home. He is trying to get something across. He is trying to impress upon the mind and upon the heart that in order to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, if you want eternal life, If you want fellowship with God, there is one and only one way to get it. You must feed on him. You must eat his flesh and you must drink his blood now. That raises three questions in my mind. I'm, you've probably got twelve questions running through your head right now. It raises three obvious ones in my mind. Let me give them to you right at the outset so you see where I'm going this morning. The first is this. What are we to eat and drink? Let's be perfectly clear. What is he talking about? What are we to eat and drink? Second question is this. Why are we to eat and drink? Why the need to feed upon the Lord Jesus. And the third question is this. How? How are we to eat and drink? So let's just take them in turn. As we seek to, to grasp what the Lord Jesus is declaring in this portion of his word. We begin with the first. What are we to eat and drink? The answer is obvious. We are to eat and drink the Lord Jesus Christ. He states it. In no uncertain terms, verse 48, I am the bread of life. And so it is Christ that we are to consume. It is Christ that we are to eat. It is Christ that we are to drink. It is Christ upon whom we are to feed. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? This statement, I am the bread of life, it is the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel account. Just follow along as I flip over a few pages and look at these other six statements in which the Lord Jesus uses these words, I am. And why I am doing this will become apparent as we go. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. In addition to being the bread of life, we read in verse 12 the words of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Look now at chapter 10 verse 7. John chapter 10 verse 7. Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. A few verses down, verse 11, same chapter, I am the good shepherd. Now into the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Ahead a couple of chapters, chapter 14, verse 6. This is the sixth reference, I am statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. The seventh and final statement, chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. Seven statements in which Christ explicitly uses these words, I am. The significance of these words and the significance of his use of these words is found in chapter 8, verse 58, where the Lord Jesus is arguing with the Jews and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am before Abraham was, I am. What is the Lord Jesus saying? What is the Lord Jesus pointing to when he makes that statement before Abraham was, I am, whenever he makes one of these statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth and the life. What is it he wants his audience to do? He wants them to run scurrying back to the Old Testament. And he wants them to go back to to an event which was burned in the Jewish psyche. As it's found in Exodus chapter 3. When that great prophet Moses was out in the wilderness pasturing his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro's sheep. He sees this bush in which there is a fire, but the bush isn't consumed. He draws closer to get a good look. And all of a sudden he hears a voice from the midst of the bush. I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then that great God commissions Moses to return to the land of Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. But Moses knows, hey, if I go to do that, they're going to want to know your name. What is your name? Who are you? And Then he hears those words that echo throughout the histories. I am. Who I am. That's God's name. When we think of God's names in Scripture, by and large, most of them are titles. Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, and such like. They're titles. When we hear God say, I am, we have his personal name. God has a name. And His name is I Am. It is a name that reveals who God is in His essential being. He is eternal. He is immortal. He is invisible. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. James tells us in the first chapter of his epistle that God is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What does that mean? No variation or shifting shadow. The context is that God is the Father of lights. That is, God is the Father of all those luminaries in the heavens above. And just as we experience shadows upon the earth, the rising and falling of the sun as the planets Turn and spin in, 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 their, in the systems in which God has placed them. There is all of this variation and shifting shadow. As all the planets move about in orbit. But God is not like that. God is the Father of lights. In whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He is the great I am. Self-existent. Without beginning. Without end. Eternal Immortal, invisible. One of my favorite little verses in the book of Ephesians. We're going to get there in our care group sooner or later. Tucked away in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says that God is over all, through all, and in all. That just blows my mind. He uses three prepositions there. First of all, he tells us that God is over all. And so we ask ourselves, where is God? Well, God is in heaven. The heavens are His throne. The earth is His footstool. That is, in heaven, God reveals His glory to the fullest in heaven. We find the fullest manifestation of His glory. He is above all. And yet God is through all. That's his providential presence. God, it, it, we don't serve the God of the deist. Some great watchmaker who creates the watch, winds it up, sets it on a table just to watch it. That's not how God interacts with his creation. No, he is through all. Sustaining and preserving and guiding and governing. And then Paul tells us thirdly in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 that God is in all. God Himself asks in Jeremiah 23 Do I not fill heaven and earth? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Every created space in this universe, God fills it. He is not mixed with His creation. That's pantheism but he fills the created order all spaces that exist in him we live and move and have our being entire universe the cosmos he fills it all and i don't know if there are spaces beyond the universe he fills those spaces too and once we've gone beyond all space that exists God still is the infinite God, limitless and boundless, the great I am. And here's the Lord Jesus walking the face of the earth. I'm the bread that has come down out of heaven. You're what? You must come to me and eat my flesh. How can we eat your flesh? I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the vine. The Lord Jesus is stating emphatically who he is. And the Jews do eventually get it, don't they? Because as we'll soon see in John chapter 8, when the Lord Jesus declares before Abraham was, I am what do the Jews immediately do? They pick up stones to throw at Him. They know exactly what He is saying. They understand at that point precisely the claim He is making to deity. And when the Lord Jesus stands and declares, I am the bread of life, and He invites us and exhorts us to feed on Him, That is to eat him and drink him. We must understand this. It is an invitation to come to God himself. But notice it doesn't end at that. The Lord Jesus makes specific mention of his flesh and of his blood. He says, yes, you must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. What what is in view there? I think we have in shadow form. We have in germinal form the cross and what is going to transpire at the cross. When the Word of God who became flesh, when the great I Am walked among us, He went to Calvary's cross and in His body He became sin for us. And He shed His life blood for us. And so when the Lord Jesus beckons His audience to come and feed on me, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, yes, in the first instance, there is an invitation to reckon in our minds with whom we are dealing. The great I Am, the God of all creation. And yet the great infinite God who took on finite creatureliness Flesh and blood, just like you and just like me, walked among us and then willingly hung upon Calvary's cross to take away the sin of the world. And that is the essence of his invitation. That is what is in view when He exhorts them and challenges them to come and to feed and to abide in Him, to believe in Him, to eat His flesh and drink His blood, it is to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. The second question is this. It's pretty obvious as well. Why? Why the need to do this? Why are we to eat and drink? Well, look back in chapter 6, at verse 35. Jesus said to them, chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. There's that statement again, that great claim. And now look at what he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We eat when we are hungry. We drink when we are thirsty. And the invitation to eat Christ's flesh and drink Christ's blood is extended to all those who are hungry and thirsty. For what? Well, we find the answer clearly stated in the Beatitudes, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst. For what? For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. It is a spiritual yearning and longing for righteousness. That is a spiritual yearning and longing to be free from sin. To be free from sin. Uh, We are sinners. Not merely sinners in what we think and do and say. Sinners by nature, uh, fallen by nature, depraved by nature. I know, I know, believe me, I know uh, that's not popular. It's not. That's not a popular thing to say today. As a matter of fact, it's, it's extremely difficult today, by and large, for people to hear that, to stomach it, a- and to accept it. Um, that isn't what Oprah's telling me. Right. That isn't what Robert Schuler's saying. That isn't what Joel Olstein's telling me. What do you mean? What do you, no, you see, the prevailing mindset today is that we're basically good. The prevailing belief today is that we are actually inherently good. And any deviant behavior, anything we do that is bad, well, today we account for it through Biology. It's in the genes or something like that, right? Chromosomes or whatever. Or psychology. Blame it on your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, your teacher, president, whoever. Sociology was a failure of the school system, failure of the church, failure of, I don't know, but somebody else's fault, not mine. And we will we will blame the deviant behavior on everything and anything, but never acknowledge what scripture makes so clear. Paul states it, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, no one does good, not even one. That's you. And you're thinking to yourself, that's you too. Yes, it is me. There is none who does good, no, not one. Even those things we think are good. I cut my neighbor's grass. I give to the Diabetes Association. I contribute to the clothing or food drive. Uh, I do this, I do that. Surely these are good things. No, because you see, goodness is defined only by that which is done for the glory of God and flows out of love for God. And that's why God says, and I know it's a harsh thing to say, but please understand, I'm not saying it's the Word of God. And if you have issue with it, it is the Word of God. All of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. There is none who does good. No, not one. I came across this some years ago. It's taken from a a Minnesota crime commission. I'm not sure they get away with putting something like this out in print nowadays. But several decades ago, they published it. Let me read it for you. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is, this is a Minnesota crime commission. Every baby is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free rein to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal. There's the plight of man. According to God's word, We are sinful in our thoughts, sinful in our words, sinful in our deeds. We sin in terms of what we do and what we don't do. And all of these acts that we call sins flow from this all-pervasive problem that we are sinful by nature. When we realize that, and only when we realize that, Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? You back up in the Beatitudes. What's the very first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is poverty of spirit? It is conviction for sin. And it is a conviction and a humiliation that then expresses itself in meekness and gentleness and a longing and a yearning for righteousness. I mean, this is so crucial. So crucial. I don't want to keep Hammering away at the same point, but this is, you know, when you think of God's truth and you think of, of of the Christian faith, there are building blocks. This is a block which lay right at the foundation, and if we don't have this block firmly in place, nothing's going to stand. We must understand how God sees us and and the hold that our sin has on us. And I know it's not pleasant to think about. I know no one takes any delight or pleasure from it, but but look at when, when when you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor and the doctor starts poking and prodding and running a series of tests. When you go back, once he's once he's looked through all of those tests and information and arrived at a conclusion, you hope and pray he's got it right, don't you? you hope he he has identified the problem because whatever remedy he prescribes, it is only going to be of any use, it is only going to deal with the problem if his diagnosis is accurate. Are you with me? Problem today, the problem today is that we have a huge misdiagnosis of man's problem. And if you get the diagnosis wrong, guess what? The remedy is wrong. And it won't do you any good. And it is only when we see ourselves in the light of Scripture. There is none who does good. No, not one. That The Spirit of God wells up within us, convicting us of our sin. And there is a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. How? By feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ. By eating His flesh and drinking His blood. What we have there, we enter into one of the greatest mysteries of Scripture. You think of the the doctrine of the Trinity, it's a mystery. The Incarnation is a mystery. So, too, the mystical union between the believer and Christ, between the church and Christ, is a great mystery. But the analogy, the metaphor, is very intentional. When you eat bread, you appropriate it physically, don't you? It becomes a part of you. When you drink wine or any other beverage, it becomes a part of you. You, you assimilate it. It becomes one with you physically. Physically. And that's the metaphor. We eat Christ, His flesh, His blood. And there is this union that takes place whereby the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, enters in, uniting Himself with us. And He takes hold of us. The Lord Jesus takes hold of us by His Spirit. And we take hold of Him by our faith and these are the marriage bonds that knit us together in an indissoluble union we become one now here here's the marvel here's the marvel Because we are one with Christ, because I am one with Christ, he's taken hold of me by his spirit. I've taken hold of him by faith. I am now in the beloved. You think back to your studies in the care groups in Ephesians chapter one, the first 14 verses. Isn't it 10 times Paul says in him, in Christ, in the beloved? He wants us to get something, doesn't he? He wants us to understand that we are one with Christ and all that we are as Christians flows from our union with Christ. Because once we are one with Him, what was mine becomes His. Because we're one. What was mine? My sin. He becomes sin for me. And there at Calvary's cross... My sin is reckoned to Him. He pays the penalty of it in full. My sin becomes His. He dies because of it. Bearing the wrath of God and that punishment that I deserved. And because I am one with Him, the merit of that punishment is now mine. Because we are one. And not just that, what is Christ's now becomes mine. He takes my sin and I get his righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. How? By feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ. By entering into this union with him by which he just takes hold of us by His Spirit. And we take hold of Him by faith. And our sin is dealt with because we are one with Him and He has dealt with it forever at Calvary's cross. And now we stand in a righteousness that is not our own, but is ours by divine right because we stand in the Beloved. That is why we are to eat and drink third question is this. How? How? How exactly Uh, this union takes place? You mentioned faith, eating, drinking, abiding, coming. How? How? What's going on here? The eating and the drinking, the coming, the abiding, the believing. It's all encapsulated in this idea of faith. That just as we take physical food and physical drink and it becomes a part of us, so too we assimilate the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in Him with all our soul. The mind, the heart, and the will. You see, there are three essential parts to faith Please understand this because there is we, we are racked with confusion about this today. There are three essential components of faith. If you, if you subtract one of these components, you no longer have faith. You see, faith includes the mind. There must be understanding as to who the Lord Jesus is. But faith also includes the heart, the affections, whereby there must be assent agreement as to what Scripture says about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there must be trust, whereby we rely on Christ. We trust in Christ. C.H. Spurgeon gives a wonderful illustration. He talks about a little girl who's trapped on the second or third story of a building that's on fire. She can't get out. She can't escape. She's at the window crying for help. The fire marshal arrives. And there are all the firemen at the base of this window, and they yell to her. They call up, "Jump! We'll catch you." Hmm. Jump! We'll catch you. She believes in her mind. I only weigh sixty pounds, if that. There's a dozen of them down there. Some of them look two hundred pounds, six foot three. They've done this before. They know what they're doing. I believe in my mind. That if I were to jump, they could catch me. Does her faith save her? No. It's restricted to the mind. And then she says, well, well, I, I, I take it to heart. I assent. I really feel it. I mean, this, this, is, this is wonderful. I, I, I really think in my heart, in, in, my, in my affections, I have this strong conviction that, that jumping, they would catch me, that they would save me. But does that strong conviction do anything for her? Is that saving faith? No. What must that little girl do? She's got to jump. And that is trust. And that is an act of the will. Whereby we come to Christ, we cling to Christ, we rest in Christ. And I get so troubled today, I get so troubled. When we hear of the gospel and Christ and, and people coming to Christ and all they mean is this. I agree with the gospel. Yeah, I think Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, I think he died for me. Yeah, I know I've done one or two bad things in my life. I believe. And all they mean by that is what? I agree. The demons agree, folks. The demons know it with their heads. It doesn't save anyone. It must take root in the heart. And that's why when it comes to faith, yes, there is the act of the mind in understanding, knowledge. There is the act of the heart in assent and conviction. And there is the act of the will whereby we trust. And we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ with all our might. C.J. Uh, C. Mahaney, in commenting on that, That phrase from a wonderful hymn, I think I've quoted it here before. The phrase is, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. He writes the following. Listen so carefully to his words. Nothing in my hand I bring. This is faith. Lord, I bring nothing to you. I do not bring to you my own righteousness. What a joke that would be. How repulsive even the thought of that must be to you. No, nothing, nothing in my hands do I bring except my sin and need of forgiveness. I come to you in spiritual poverty and helplessness. Looking to you for the grace that flows from the fountain filled with your holy blood. Simply to your cross I cling. O oh Christ, I wrap my arms in the entirety of my heart around your cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved me. Thank you that you gave yourself for me. I rejoice in your love and your acceptance of me. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe? Have you truly fed Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You young ones, give me your attention up here. Do you really believe, kids? Not because your mommy and daddy are a Christian. Not because you've been coming here as long as you can remember and you can rhyme off some wonderful memory verses. I mean, do you believe? Young person, you've been wavering for so long now. Yeah, I think I said a prayer at one time. I think I kind of, sort of believe, but my life is an absolute mess. Have you truly believed? Have you ever sensed that hungering and yearning and thirsting after righteousness, felt your spiritual bankruptcy and found rest for your soul in Christ alone? I don't know where you're at this morning. I'm, I'm getting to know most of you. I don't know who's a visitor and who isn't. Well, I know most of those who aren't visitors. I don't know why you're here this morning. But hear the words of Christ. I am the bread of life. And all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out.